Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 23 King in the North. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. As I mentioned a few episodes ago, Scotland did not just hibernate because their king had gone south. In matters both political and religious, both James and his Scottish subjects were active throughout the 22 years of his London-based life. I worry that after a dozen episodes on court corruption, failed parliaments, and general incompetence in royal governance, I've given the impression that James wasn't particularly good at actually being king. I'll give him a thorough analysis at some point, to look at what he did right and what he did wrong, but when it came to the personal politics of ruling, James was pretty good at his job. As he proudly declared to the English Parliament in 1607, this I must say for Scotland. Here I sit and govern it with my pen. I write and it is done, and by a clerk of the council I govern Scotland now, which others could not do by the sword. Now, obviously this was a boast, and it was never actually that simple, but his governing style in both kingdoms was very focused on the written word. Now, this had its own drawbacks, especially in a kingdom that had been ruled for 50 years by a queen who flourished on a public stage. However, this reliance on governing by the pen was necessary when one king ruled three kingdoms. And, at least at first, James excelled at it. As we've heard, James promised to return to Scotland every three years, and at least in the first few months of being in London, he made efforts to make that possible. In August 1603, he had been in discussions with the Archbishop of York to purchase Southwell Manor, to act as a resting place between London and Edinburgh. But these arrangements became less necessary, as postal routes between the two capitals improved over the next year until more than 60 letters a year went from the King to the Scottish Privy Council, which was itself made up of trusted and capable ministers. All of this meant that James's physical presence in Edinburgh became less necessary. 
Initially, the leading minister in the Privy Council was the Earl of Dunfermline, Alexander Seton. Over the next 22 years, the Scottish Privy Council increased royal control over a fractious and decentralised kingdom. As we discussed in our introductory episodes, James had asserted his authority over a number of rebellious or disobedient lords prior to inheriting the English crown, and this movement continued in his absence. In 1604, severe punishments were enacted for those found guilty of feuding, and these penalties were increased in 1609 with the Statutes of Iona. The Statutes were also an attempt to rein in the larger Gaeldom, the highlands and islands which spoke Gaelic, and fiercely resisted centralising, or in the minds of the Privy Council, civilising. This was a multi-pronged policy, as the plantations of Ulster was also part of breaking this united Gaeldom. James was publicly contemptuous of these subjects. In the Basilicon, he describes the islanders as utterly barbarous, while the highlands were merely barbarous. James's government, just like Elizabeth's, had attempted to control these border regions through judicial reform and colonisation by more civil subjects. After James moved south, further plantation projects began, and largely failed, on the mainland as well as on islands like the Isle of Lewis and the Isle of Harris. In 1608, military force was used to subdue the isles, and the commander of the force, Lord Oakletree, managed to capture a number of clan leaders without a pitched battle. Oakletree was rewarded for his service with over 3,000 acres of land in Tyrone. It was in the aftermath of this show of force that the statutes were negotiated between the new Bishop of the Isles, Andrew Knox, and many of these local lords. Much like had occurred in Ireland under the Tudors, their authority was acknowledged by the Crown, but in return they were to be its agents in justice, and their autonomy was reduced. Feuding, raiding, and the maintenance of large households were forbidden. Further bringing them into line with what Edinburgh considered acceptable, they were to abandon Catholicism and join the Kirk, and their sons were to be educated in the Lowlands and taught Scots. Now, the extent of these changes, and how effectively they were policed, is debatable, The different clans still fought, often incredibly violently, and lords still kept retinues far beyond the legal limits, while royal authority still required the consent of these local nobles to enforce. But Gaelic-speaking Kirk ministers were introduced, and the Kirk began acting as an arm of royal authority in parallel to the lords. Similar measures were adopted in the border regions, the Middle Shires, as James began calling them. As we've seen before, even when England and Scotland were at peace, lords on both sides of the border raided and killed one another in an endless dance of violence. Monarchs before James had tried to bring some law and order to the region without fundamentally weakening their first line of defence in the case of a full-blown war. But now, with one king of both kingdoms, war between them seemed like an impossibility. In 1605, a dedicated military force, consisting largely of mounted soldiers, was created to keep the peace between the marcher lords. They didn't stop the violence entirely, but this patrol, in combination with strengthening trade links and better harvests, which in themselves reduced the financial need to raid, 
border raids ceased to be regular occurrences. They also stopped being quite so violent, focusing more on stealing sheep than killing and burning. Again, violence never completely left, but some measure of peace began to reign. And then, Lord Treasurer Cranfield, searching for ways to reduce the king's spending, dissolved the border force as an unnecessary expense. The borders were relatively peaceful, after all. When the violence inevitably immediately returned, the patrol force was reconstituted, but it was never quite as effective as it once had been. The king and his privy council's efforts hadn't led to a totally peaceful kingdom, far from it. But compared to what came before, it was an achievement of state-building. As Croft puts it, quote, The taming of previously anarchic frontier regions was one of the greatest achievements of the early Stuart monarchy. To enforce these new decrees, James attempted to introduce the JP system that England had, although this was never very successful. By his death, fewer than a quarter of Scottish shires had a justice of the peace. Hereditary rights to institute justice were common throughout Scotland, and their holders, often members of noble families, were fiercely protective of their highly lucrative positions. Now, this isn't to say that the Scottish government was a paper tiger or had no teeth. The harshest punishments were meted out to even the most powerful of nobility. One such case involved the ninth Lord Maxwell, who, in 1608, murdered a rival by shooting him in the back under the flag of truce. After he fled to France, he was declared a traitor, had his titles revoked, and convicted of murder. And on his return in 1612, Maxwell was arrested, and in 1613, he was beheaded. A similarly high-profile example was made of Patrick Stewart, Earl of Orkney, and as you might guess from the surname, a relative of James. He was the grandson of James V, through a bastard line, and due to the distance between Edinburgh and his holdings, he barely paid lip service to his royal cousin's government. He was a notably harsh ruler, building fabulous and fabulously expensive palaces and castles, exploiting the population of Orkney and Shetland to both build and pay for them. So cruel was his rule that he was summoned to answer the Privy Council in 1609, at which point he was arrested. After years imprisoned, his illegitimate son Robert began a small rebellion in his name, only to be defeated and hanged by the Earl of Caithness. His father, admitting that he had ordered Robert to begin the rebellion, was executed at Mercat Cross in Edinburgh in February 1615. He was beheaded by the Maiden, an early form of guillotine which is on display at the National Museum of Scotland. Although Patrick's brother was made Earl of Carrick, the crown kept the earldom of Orkney and most of its lands for itself. So the Scottish government was progressing along centralising lines, but I hinted before that James's governing style had a time limit of effectiveness. Absentee monarchs, by definition, had little contact with the kingdom they ruled, and even as early as 1607, James lamented that he no longer recognised many of the nobles he had known as children. This was more than just a worry about feeling awkward at social events, he was losing touch with Scotland. His contact with his native land was limited to visitors to London and messages, both spoken and written. 
As time went on, James's lack of knowledge about trends and opinion in Scotland, not just from the lords, but in the Kirk and the cities, was becoming more and more obvious. In his dealings with the Kirk, James's approach could not have been more different than his dealings with the Church of England. Where he had brought together the Hampton Court Conference to try and find a way to satisfy the different opinions within the COE, James's attitude towards the Kirk was much less conciliatory. Now, he didn't completely ignore the concerns of Presbyterian Scots. When Bancroft became Archbishop of Canterbury in October 1604, he floated the idea of promoting the Archbishopric's jurisdiction to all of Britain. Naturally, the Kirk objected, and the idea was dropped. When Bancroft died six years later, his successor was George Abbott, whose style of preaching was very much in line with what the Kirk wanted. It also helped that Abbott had been the Earl of Dunbar's personal chaplain, and so had plenty of experience in Scotland, and knew many Scots clergy. However, James wanted bishops. He wanted full episcopacy in the Kirk, and he saw it as his right to implement it. In a general assembly of the Kirk, gathered in 1605, royally aligned bishops made up a quorum of the body, while in the 1606 Scottish Parliament, which was much more malleable than its English sister, the bishops received the revenues from the diocese once again. These acts were highly unpopular within the wider Kirk, and both John Spotswood, future Archbishop of St Andrews, and the Earl of Dunfermline warned their king that these reforms were widely preached against. In response, thinking Dunfermline too soft, George Hume, Earl of Dunbar and Baron of Berwick, became the leading figure on the Privy Council. Dunbar would serve James admirably for the rest of his life. He travelled to and from London regularly, and kept a firm hand on the tiller of the Scottish state until his death in 1611. With his death, Dunfermline returned to his previous position of favour, and he too served his king competently until his own death eleven years later. Croft proposes that Dunfermline had been correct in his warnings in 1606, being much more in touch with wider Scottish opinion, and that had James taken his concerns to heart, the powder keg that would explode in 1639 might have been averted. But he didn't. Eight of the most notable critics of James's Episcopal agenda were summoned to court to meet with the king. But this was no Hampton Court conference where disagreements were to be worked out. James and chosen clergy lectured and preached at these malcontents, informing them that they were wrong to oppose the king's will. At least two of these critics were exiled after refusing to be cowed. In 1610, a carefully orchestrated General Assembly of the Kirk gathered in Glasgow. Sympathetic or moderate ministers had their costs paid for by the Crown to ensure they attended. This assembly agreed to further strengthen the episcopacy by expanding the diocese of the bishops. Two courts of high commission, the instruments of enforcing conformity which were so hated by reformists in England, were established to operate in Scotland while apostolic succession was reintroduced to Scotland when three Scottish bishops were consecrated in London before being sent back north to consecrate their colleagues. In both 1612 and 1616, the explicitly stated aim of James was to bring the Scottish Church into line with the English, 
and his opinion on the Kirk was made abundantly clear upon his first and only visit to Scotland in 1617. The chapel at Holyrood was renovated to match the more English style of worship James now favoured. An organ was installed, something that hadn't been in a Scottish church since the Reformation, and James wanted to display wooden statues, but thankfully changed his mind in the face of significant opposition. Nevertheless, he held English-style services, which included kneeling to receive communion, which caused fury from Presbyterian ministers. They had gathered in Edinburgh to meet the king and attend Parliament in June, but within a month they had something else to be angry about. The five articles were shown to a synod in July. These included further powers to the bishops, the restoration of five holy days to the calendar, including Christmas, and the order that communion must be received kneeling. These were wholly unacceptable to the attendance of the synod, as well as at a subsequent General Assembly in November that year. James was, characteristically, furious. Either we and this church must be held idolatrous in this point of kneeling, or they reputed rebellious knaves in refusing the same. He wrote to Spotswood, now Archbishop of St Andrews. Despite their own dislike of the articles, the bishops forced them through at another General Assembly at Perth, and the 1621 Scottish Parliament ratified them. Both votes were incredibly close, and the Scottish Privy Council tacitly allowed the bishops to be lax in enforcing them. If the Oath of Allegiance had done wonders to split the Catholic community in England, then the Five Articles of Perth did the same for the Kirk. The problem was that the Kirk was in the majority in Scotland, was powerful and influential, and the split was not in favour of the King. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. James's visit to Scotland was not, however, a complete train wreck. James justified his visit to his English courtiers, among other ways, as salmon-like instinct to return to where he was born, which I included just because it makes me laugh. 
the Scottish Privy Council immediately began preparing the ground, in some cases literally, for the King's visit. Practical measures were taken, such as the renovation of roads and of travel lodgings, but also more social preparations were made. Cellars were stocked with food and drink, and populations of wild deer and birds were checked to ensure that they would provide enough entertainment for the hunt-fond monarch. On a symbolic level, the king's visit reminded the Scots and the English that he was a Scottish king, and that the Kingdom of Scotland was a valued domain rather than a minor vassal of London. On a political level, the gathering of the leading figures of Scotland in Edinburgh allowed James to refresh his personal connections that were so important to governing. His hunts and feasts and the dispensation of titles and gifts was a valuable method of retaining the loyalty of men who had been hard to control even when James had been based in Edinburgh. Aside from the religious problems James's visit brought up, there was one major mistake that, in hindsight, takes on even greater importance. Charles did not come with his father to the country of his birth. Whether this was because the prince preferred to stay with his ailing mother, or because James did not want him to come along, instead, the king took his favourite, Buckingham. For all the benefits of the trip, which I just outlined, the personal connections and symbolic links between this Stuart dynasty and their native Scotland, the Prince of Wales and future king benefited not a jot. His only memories of Scotland were from his early childhood. He was raised in England, and when he takes the throne, Charles will have very little personal experience of Scottish customs or a relationship with his Scottish subjects. How much a single trip would have done to amend this is debatable, but it couldn't have hurt. While we're on the topic of Scotland, considering last week we discussed New England, we should take a brief aside to talk about New Scotland. On the 29th of August, 1621, Sir William Alexander was granted by James the right to settle the modern-day area of New Brunswick, the Gasp Peninsula, the Isles in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and modern-day Nova Scotia. Partly, this royal patent was to give Scots access to New World colonies, as they were largely denied access to English settlements. But the location had strategic motivations too. This theoretical colony would threaten New France, centred on Quebec. The project would face immediate obstacles. The first ship sailed from Scotland in June 1622, but poor weather forced it to take shelter in Newfoundland for the winter. Alexander sent another ship in March 1623, laden with supplies for the settlers of the first ship, only to find that several important colonists were dead. The two ships decided to return to Scotland, and Alexander was £6,000 worse off. But he was not about to give up. In 1624, he published a recruitment pamphlet, an encouragement to colonies, and managed to convince James to offer baronetcies in Nova Scotia. Up to 100 gentlemen were offered land and titles in return for cash and six colonists. Very few actually took them up on the offer, and the threatened creation of a hundred new nobles only added to the frustrations of Scotland's existing aristocracy, who had already watched James expand their ranks in pursuit of money. For now, Nova Scotia was a pipe dream. 
It would only be in 1629 that a permanent settlement would be finally established, only for it to be lost in a treaty with France of the same year. Let's look at another small, but much more successful, colony in this period. The island of St. Christopher, or St. Kitts. The captain of James's household guard, Sir Thomas Warner, established the beginnings of the island colony in 1623. It doesn't appear that Warner had any legal authority to do so. He had first explored the island after his previous objective, establishing a colony in Guiana, was cancelled by the king to appease the Spanish. He was on his way back to England when he visited a number of Caribbean islands, and St. Kitts appealed due to its natural resources and friendly Carib natives. On the 28th of January, 1624, when he arrived on the island with the intent to settle, he came with 16 other people, among them his wife and son. This was a minuscule number of people to establish a colony, and, like every other colony, they ran into trouble. Their first crop of tobacco was destroyed by a hurricane that September, a storm which also destroyed their houses. They were persistent, though, and they tried again, and the crop was ready to harvest by February the next year, and a month later, new settlers and supplies arrived. By this point, the previous pleasant relations with the Caribs appear to have worsened until an impromptu visit by French privateers. The English welcomed the French and supported their desire to begin their own colony on the island out of a fear of the Carib population. This alliance came in handy before the end of the year, as the Anglo-French settlers fought two battles with the locals. Throughout all of this, Warner was back in England seeking official recognition and protection for his colony. He finally received a royal patent to establish a colony in the West Indies on the 13th September 1625. This patent also gave Warner the title of Lieutenant of St. Kitts, as well as the islands of Nevis, Barbados, and Montserrat. That England had no colonies on these islands yet was neither here nor there. They soon would. Back in episode 21, we touched on the opening moves of the Thirty Years' War. Religious differences between the Catholic heir to the title of Holy Roman Emperor, Ferdinand, and the Protestant faction in the Kingdom of Bohemia, led to Ferdinand's officials being shown the door to the Prague Castle. Well, the window. This is relevant to our narrative for two reasons, aside from the fact that it's one of the deadliest conflicts in European history and worth talking about. The first reason is that Frederick, Elector Palatine, and son-in-law to James, became involved in the dispute. That's putting it mildly, but we'll expand on that in a second. The other reason it matters to us is that Ferdinand was a Habsburg, the same family that ruled in Spain, and James was very eager to secure a Spanish marriage for his son Charles and the traditional dowry that such a marriage would provide. This meant that James was soon stuck in the middle of this burgeoning military conflict. First, let's look at the so-called Spanish Match. Negotiations between James and Philip II had been ongoing since at least May of 1615. The Spanish ambassador, the Count of Gondomar, was not the Machiavellian manipulator that contemporaries and traditional histories paint him as. This opinion of Gondomar is largely based on the reports he sent back to Madrid, in which 
he obviously exaggerates his impact on English policy. The Spanish Council was also far from fully trusting of Gondomar. His extended time in England raised concerns that he had become too Anglophile. However, he was cunning in one particular way. He had arrived in London in 1613 and settled in for the long game, and soon ingratiated himself into the affections of both James and Charles. He was a friend to the royals, and this friendship was a powerful asset in the game of international diplomacy. The Spanish terms for a marriage between the Infanta of Spain and Charles were clear. Any children born from the Union would be raised by their mother in her Catholic religion and would be allowed to keep that religion once they reached their majority. They would also be able to succeed to the throne even if they kept the Catholic faith. James knew that these terms would be utterly unacceptable to his subjects, even though he hated their involvement in what he saw as both a familial and kingly area of concern. Still, negotiations continued. Alongside these personal conditions, greater toleration was to be granted to English Catholics, although this would be a constant topic of conversation between the Spanish and the English. The government's attitude towards their Catholic subjects would become part of the negotiations. Restrictions were increased to apply pressure, and then reduced as a sign of goodwill, depending on the diplomatic aims of the court. Gondomar would remain in England until 1618, before ill health required his return to Spain, yet he remained the chief middleman between the English and Spanish courts, even as other Spaniards took his place in person. And partly this was due to the friendly relationships he had built with both the king and prince. The prospect of a marriage alliance, and the vast sum that a dowry would bring into the royal coffers, was continuously dangled in front of James by the Spanish. Whether James was equally as keen on dragging out the negotiations, or whether he truly believed that a marriage was possible, is debated. The king's desire for peace was genuine, and if the Spanish court valued a betrothal as much as their English counterparts, perhaps they could leverage their Austrian cousins to bring the conflict to a close before it truly began. That didn't happen. In September 1618, Spain began openly supporting Ferdinand. Partly, this was for the expected reasons. Shared religion in the face of a Protestant alliance and familial ties. But the conflict was not isolated to the Rhineland and Bohemia. Spain's truce with the Dutch, the Twelve Years' Truce, was in its last years. It was due to expire in 1621, and neither side particularly wished to extend it especially after the death of Archduke Albert, the most influential Spanish voice for peace. The continent was gearing up for full-blown war, and in 1619, the Bohemians offered their throne, the thing that the Holy Roman Emperor was fighting for, to Frederick, Elector Palatine. Frederick sent a message to his father-in-law to ask for his advice, and James's opinion was clear. The Bohemians were in violent rebellion against their appointed sovereign, regardless of the reasons, and so they were in the wrong. Frederick made his decision without waiting for James's response to arrive, and on the 4th of November 1619, Frederick was crowned King of Bohemia. 
Next week, we will see the results of that choice, as James attempts to balance belligerent subjects, familial loyalty, crippling debt, and a still unquenched hope that peace will prevail. Thank you to the peers of the realm. The royal headsman, executed today. Her Grace the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich. The Most Honourable the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer. The Right Honourable Countess of Shrewsbury, Elaine Dickens. The Right Honourable Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley. The Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan. The Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner. The Countess of Cornwall, Belinda Clarence. The Right Honourable Earl of Hereford, Christopher Remo. The Earl of Dunbar, Angus Wilson. The Right Honourable Earl of Southampton, Alan Goldstein. And the Earl of Northampton, Justin Drowns. If you want to join their ranks, go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Remember that you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music in today's episode, my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.